to Acts chapter 10. It's on page 918 if you're using the Bible there in the pew. If we've not met, my name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope that you'll remember some of what Jared said as we read the text here in a few minutes. By the way, I'm going to read all of chapter 10. And this is a long chapter. In fact, it's the longest chapter in the book of Acts. All right, so we're going to, but we're going to read it from start to finish because the story, I want you to hear the whole thing. And then you may want to go back and read it uh, later on today. I want to tell you a story, though, before I, before I get into that, into that message. D- uh, during, during seminary, I was part-time, served part-time in a local church in New Orleans, Louisiana. And more than a decade later, uh, I read an article written by the guy who had become the pastor of that church long after I had left. He'd become the pastor of that church, and he wrote this article about the church. The title of the article is this, Uncovering My Church's Ku Klux Klan Connections. Over the years, that church had flourished, but then it declined as the neighborhood changed. The pastor worked to revitalize the church, to get the now commuter congregation, people driving in from from outside of the city, trying to get that commuter congregation to connect with their neighbors who were now mostly black and not white. In the process of doing that, he discovered that when the church was begun in a living room in that neighborhood, back in their late 20s, one of the family members in whose living room the church was started was also a member of the KKK. On the day when their brand new first building was dedicated, in attendance there was the men's choir from the Baptist Bible Institute there in New Orleans, which was the forerunner to the seminary, and also members of the Ku Klux Klan at the dedication of the church. On the dedication stone that was affixed to the church, all the typical things that you would see on the facing portion of that stone, on the back of that stone, when it was found, was the emblem of the KKK. Well, in the process of discovering all this, the pastor went to his leadership team and uh, they decided that they would seek to lead the congregation to publicly hold a service. They would communicate it to their neighbors. They'd been doing a lot of ministry in and around the neighborhood, trying to show the people that they were a church for all people. And then this comes out and they said, we want to hold a public service. We want to disavow that sinful racist past we want people to know that we are a church for all people no matter who you are where you come from and as he began to lead that process that would happen over the period of many months he discovered that prejudices still existed in the congregation comments like you're turning our church over to those people were heard and some people left even some people in leadership because they didn't want to see their church become something that they were uncomfortable with. The pastor wrote in that article that I referenced, the Sunday morning that should have been our celebration of racial reconciliation became a showdown on the playground. I'll give you the title of the article again. You can Google it and read the whole thing if you want. The bottom line is this, that over time, the church finally started to reach their neighbors and the leadership and the membership of the church inevitably became more and more a reflection of their neighbors in the community. I'm telling you that story for a couple of reasons this morning. First of all, because attitudes of prejudice and discrimination are a result of our fallen human nature. It's a universal human problem. I've been all over the world. 
It's a universal human problem. It doesn't matter if you're Asian or American. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, what first language you speak. Prejudice and discriminatory attitudes reside in every human heart. All of us have issues with this. We have the propensity to discriminate against people, whether it's their age or their ancestry, whether it's their affluence, their accomplishments, whatever it might be. The second reason I'm telling you all this this morning is because this text is in the Bible to show us that God means for his church to be a church for all people, not just one ethnicity. And so God is going to work to convert hearts and to move his gospel out of an ethnically confined group of people and move it into the nations, into the Gentile peoples. That's why this text is here. And so I'm going to ask us to be patient and read through the entire text as we see it. And as we do, I'm going to point your attention to three things in the text. First, you're going to see two distinct communities of people. The second thing we're going to look at this morning is the conversion that we all need, and the last thing will be the implications that we must live. All right, so are you ready? This is Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, a devout soldier, from among them who attended him and having related everything to these three guys, right, he sends them to Joppa. That's scene one. Scene two. The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were pre preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. Such an unusual response. No, Lord. We did that when we were kids. No, mom, no dad, right? So he said, no, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, I love this. The, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So something's happening here. Peter's not in control of it. It's not his idea. God's doing all of this with Cornelius, with Peter. And Peter went down to the men and he said, I'm the one you're looking for. What, what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in 
as his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he called together the relatives and close friends and when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter, Peter lifted him up and said, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and he found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when it was that I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked you, why then did you send for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying at the ninth hour. I was in my house and a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer's been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, ask for Simon, who's called Peter. We've heard all of this, right? He said, so I sent for you at once in verse 33. And you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, this is a great verse to remember on a Sunday morning. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now what would you do? What would you say if you were Peter? Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, here we go, remember the video you just heard, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who've been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And we used to say, this is the word of the Lord. And we would all repeat, thanks be to God. Yeah. So there are two distinct communities across this text the Jews and the Gentiles and I want to talk about that but I, I want to set it up for us just a bit chapter 10 uh, obviously follows chapter 9 and at the end of chapter 9 we see Saul converted from a persecutor of Christians to a proclaimer of the gospel and when that happens Luke who wrote Acts reintroduces Peter into the story 
That's why we see him there in chapter 10. And in chapter 9, verse 35, and in verse 42, you see many people coming to faith in Jesus through Peter's ministry. And the churches are multiplying, and these multiplying churches are filled with Jewish men and women and boys and girls. And so everything that Jesus wanted to happen is happening. He wanted the gospel to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. But what about the ends of the earth? What about the nations? Acts chapter 10. Two distinct communities, the Jews and the Gentiles. They live close to each other, but they are isolated from one another. These are people who have their own customs and traditions separate from each other. They have learned to coexist, but they never co-mingle. They don't like each other very much. And in some places, they have, well, they have some out-and-out violence occurring. They're despising each other. If you're a Jew like Peter in this text, you knew from very early on that there are two kinds of people in the world, the Jews and everyone else. You were the... You were the clean people. You, in, a, in a world that was full of dirty people, in a world that was dirty, you were different. You were the people of God in a unique way. And then there were those Gentiles who were unclean. In the Old Testament, there were the laws that were designed to remind you, remind you that you were special and to, and to set you apart as the distinct people of God. So if you did all the sacrifices and you were careful about what you ate and what you touched, and whose house you actually went into, then you could continue to be clean. But everyone else was unclean. Practically speaking, Jews and Gentiles could not share food and lodging. They couldn't share food and shelter. It would have been unthinkable for a guy like Peter to go into the home of a Gentile like Cornelius, but Jesus is building his church, and it's going to be a church for all people. He said, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So we know from Acts that the Gentiles, that the nations are going to be saved. But how will the gospel get to them if it remains cloistered away among the Jewish people? And if they happen to somehow overhear the gospel, right? How will they actually receive the gospel? How will that work for them? And if they receive the gospel, how will they become part of the church? How will they be one? with these Jews. After all, they're Gentiles. They're they're unclean. In other words, the only way for a Gentile to really have access to Jesus was be for them to become culturally, traditionally Jewish first. They'd have to convert in a sense. They'd have to take on some of those things because they're unclean. They would first have to do all of that in order to have access to Jesus. That's the struggle happening in, in Peter's mind and in his heart. And this is the point of that, that there's a posture of ethnic and cultural superiority that isolates us from other people. That was true in the early church. It was true for Peter. That's why he said, no, Lord, I I would never eat anything that was unclean. I've never had anything that was considered common. So God is dealing with him. That was true of that church in New Orleans. Many of those people had this this posture of superiority towards others who were not like them. And it separated them, it isolated them from their neighbors. It could be true for you and me right here in Ahwatukee. It could isolate us from people who need the gospel. God begins to correct Peter's posture here, but it's not easy. It's not simple. God says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. Peter says, no, Lord, not going to do it. Then God reminds him, hey, don't, 
Don't refer to something that I have made clean as, as common. Peter's faith, Peter's faith is so mingled with Jewish traditions that he can't tell the difference between the two. He can't untie the knot. He, he, is, he is immersed in Jewish cultural practice so much so that he can't separate those things from gospel essentials. And so it's got him isolated from the people around him that Jesus wants him to connect to, that Jesus wants him to share the gospel with, that Jesus expects him to reach. And that can be true for us. We, we can build up some expectations for people that they have to be this way or that way in order for them to become Christian. Cornelius, those two distinct communities, that was a picture of the Jews. The, 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 Cornelius, a Gentile, right? He's an Italian. He's a Roman centurion. We could go on and on about his life, but what we're told in the text that makes the most sense or that matters the most is that he's a good man. He's a devout man. You see it in verse 2 of chapter 10. You see it again in verse 22. He's pious. He's moral. He's God-fearing. He prays. He gives. He has the respect of many of the Jews around him, which is pretty incredible. I mean, this guy is a commander of 100 men of the occupying force of their country. And yet he's won their respect. He respects them. But Cornelius isn't a Jew, and he's not yet a believer in Jesus either. Here's what Cornelius has. He has a life of religion that, that keeps him from God. A life of religion that keeps him from God. What does that mean? Well, let's press on through it to the second, the second point of the message, which is the conversion that we all need. Let's keep thinking about Cornelius. Cornelius has this vision while he's praying. An angel comes in and tells him what to do. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Wouldn't you expect that the angel from God would come to a guy like Cornelius described here and say, Cornelius, you're the man. You've really got it going on. I mean, Cornelius, you are giving, you are praying. Cornelius, the world needs more people like you. But that's not what the angel tells Cornelius at all, is it? He says, hey, Cornelius, you need to send for this guy, Peter. He's in Joppa. There's something that you need to hear from him. Because Cornelius, while you're one of the good ones, being good isn't enough. It never has been. It never will be. Jesus spoke to a similar man named Nicodemus in John's gospel in chapter 3. Nicodemus was a good man, a moral man, a pious man, a religious man. He had wide influence, a good reputation among his people. But Jesus didn't come to Nicodemus by night and say, Nick, you're doing great. And I love how you pray and I love how you give and I love the fact that you have a good reputation. Among no, he didn't say that. He told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of heaven. You need a change so radical and so deep, it's like being born all over again. Christian conversion isn't just a mere improvement to your life. Believing in Jesus isn't just something that you add on to your life so that you're a better person, a better version of yourself. It's a thoroughgoing reorientation, redirection of your life. It's not a step in the right direction. It's a total makeover. It's a complete change deep in your heart so that every day it shapes you and changes you more and more. Cornelius is a respectable guy. I mean, you would want this guy for your friend. You would want him as a neighbor. But God sends an angel to this good man and tells him to go find Peter because there's something that Peter knows that he needs to hear. Why is that? 
Because Cornelius needed to be converted from a life of religion to a life of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the conversion that Cornelius needed. You see, the default setting of the human heart is to be our own Lord and Savior, to be our own God, to to, to be good enough, to depend on ourselves, to win merit with God. And, And we do that by trying to keep the rules. Now, we may try to keep our own rules and we may understand and even show up in a building like this on a Sunday morning and say, I want to keep those rules. I want to be a good person, a moral person. So I'm going to live a clean life. And in the end, I know that I'm going to be good with God. And mainly, we just measure ourselves against other people which is safe, right? Because we can all think of somebody that we're better than. But that's not the standard. It just reveals how deceptive and pervasive sin really is in our hearts. Because we take comfort, we even take pride in our own moral performance. And we exalt ourselves for our own goodness rather than exalting the God who made us to glorify him, who made us to find our satisfaction and our joy in him rather than our own performance. So Cornelius needed a conversion from a life of religion to a life of faith in Jesus. How's that going to happen? He needed to hear the gospel. And so that's what you see Peter saying to him. Verses 34 down through verse 43, you see it. If you could pull it out, here are the bullets that he goes through. If you want to know, well, if I share the gospel with someone, what should I include? You should tell them that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, he is Lord. That's what Peter tells Cornelius. Jesus is the Christ. He's Lord of all. He's the rescuer. He's the deliverer. He's the Savior. And that Jesus was empowered by the Spirit to do what? He did good. He lived a perfect life. And he set the devil's captives free. Man, if you, if you ever think that you're going to share the gospel with people and you're not going to get some pushback because some of it just sounds crazy to the 2019 human mind, get over it. The gospel is meant to offend us. It's meant to set us to thinking. And this is what Peter shared with him. He said, Jesus came, he did good works, and he set the devil's captives free. And people are going to listen to you and think, the devil? You are Baptist. You're so strange. But this is a cosmic conflict going on in the world all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Tell the story. Tell the gospel. This is why Jesus came. And Jesus died on the cross under the curse for others. He didn't die because of his own sins. He didn't die because he needed to take punishment for what he'd done wrong. He died in our place for our sins on the cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day to reign forever. And he will judge everyone. Jesus has been appointed by God to judge all the living and the dead. And all of this was done according to the scripture. It says the prophets tell us about this, that the promise of forgiveness of sins has been brought to fruition in Jesus for everyone who trusts in him. That's what you can receive. Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius. He's a good man. He's a pious man. He's a moral man. He has a great reputation with people all around him. The guys that are working with him in the army, the people in the community. And yet, that life of religion has driven him away from God, not near to God. He can't be reconciled to God while depending upon himself. You see, that's the problem with religion. 
It gives you a false sense of security that you can depend on yourself and it just drives you further and further away because you just keep trying harder and harder, more and more to depend upon yourself rather than on Jesus. Cornelius needed to hear that salvation, that forgiveness had already been won. It had already been earned, but not by his works, not by his good deeds. It had been earned by all the good that Jesus has done, living a perfect life before his father. It had been earned. It had been won by his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. Cornelius needed to be converted from a life of religion to a life of faith in Jesus. And, and parenthetically, if I may, uh, Cornelius is not an example of how God will somehow save people who have never heard the gospel across the world. It's a, it's a thorny problem for us as Christians. And if you haven't been asked about it, you will be. What about people who haven't heard about Jesus? Cornelius is not an example of how God is going to save people who haven't heard the gospel. He's the opposite of that, right? We've read the whole story. We've heard it. You're going to hear some more in chapter 11. I love what A.G. Fernando said in his commentary on Acts. He's a Sri Lankan believer. And this is what he said. The only way we know from Scripture that people can be saved is by responding to the gospel. If God has chosen another way to bring salvation to people, he hasn't revealed it to us in his word. And so we're feeling some pressure now. We ought to feel some pressure. We ought to feel some tension in our hearts. How do we get the gospel to people who need to hear it at the ends of the earth, people who have not yet heard it? I, I want you to know that what happened here in this text is actually still going on in the Hindu world, in the Muslim world, in the Buddhist world. It's still happening. I, I know missionaries who have been approached by people in each one of those cultures and have been told, I had a dream a man in white told me to come and find someone who could tell me about Isa or Yesu or Jesus, someone who could come and tell me the truth of salvation. You see, those people might have been good moral people with a great reputation in their communities, but they needed to hear the gospel in order to be saved. It's true for everyone. It's true for every good person in your family. It's true for every good person in our community. It's true for every good person among the 81,000 people living here in Ahwatukee. We need to be converted from a life of religion to a life of faith in Jesus. And that means every single one of us who names the name of Christ needs to be ready anytime, any place to share with anyone who needs to hear the gospel. Last, last week I was sitting in an elder team meeting and I got a, I got a text from someone who had been in the early service and now they were at the mall yeah, so they went to the mall, right? After the, during the second service, that's what they were doing. And they sent a text and they said, you're not gonna believe it. Just shared the gospel with a girl who was helping me at Aldo's. They were shopping for shoes. And they told the story about how this person asked them. Now, here's how these conversations start. It's crazy. This person approached, uh, the person texted me and said, wow, you're sure dressed up. Have you been to church? Boom. That's called an open door. <laughs> and this person waited, yes, I have been. Wow, it's so early. They're looking at their watch because it's only like, you know, 11 o'clock. You've already been to church? Yes, I have. Oh, what was the sermon about? Another open door, bigger, kind of like a garage, like a hangar for the biggest plane you can imagine. And so this person shared the gospel with them. There wasn't a decision on the spot in the middle of Aldo, 
But you know what was interesting? And this often happens, right, when you're in a place like that, is this person shared with that, that clerk asking those questions, but there were two other people standing around, leaning in and listening. How many people heard the gospel? Three people that day. And we pray that God will use that, right, in the lives of people. We need to share the gospel and be ready anytime, any place with anyone. Peter is a Christian. He needs conversion too, though, right? He needs to be converted from a posture of superiority to gospel humility. He needs a new posture for his heart, one of gospel humility. How does God convert Peter? He used show and tell. Some of you use show and tell with your kids. It works for adults too. It worked for Peter. He showed him that picnic, not once, but three times. He gave him a principle. Peter, what I have called clean, don't call it, un don't call it common. And then he sent him some Gentiles to host in the home where he was staying. And then he sent those Gentiles so that he could travel with them overnight. Remember, this is, this is not just a one-day trip, just a four-hour walk. This is overnight. So he's with them. He's sharing food and shelter with them, things that a Jew should never share with a Gentile. God, with every step of the way, he's, he's working gospel humility into the heart of the apostle Peter. Peter finally arrives at Cornelius' home. He steps across the threshold of a Gentile, probably the first Gentile home Peter had ever entered in all of his life. I don't know how old the man was. Maybe he was in his 20s. He'd never been in a Gentile's home before this moment, and now he's crossed over. And, and do you see how this gospel humility is sinking into his heart? Do you, you remember what happened? He comes into contact with Cornelius. What does Cornelius do? He falls down at Peter's feet and worships him. And Peter immediately reaches down. He says, get up, get up, get, get up, Cornelius. I'm a man like you. I think that's a real evidence of gospel humility. Because he's not looking at Cornelius as a Gentile anymore. Just looks at him like a man. He's a man. He's just like me. He's in need of grace, just like me. It's not about the color of his skin or the traditions or practices or the language that he speaks. He's a man who needs Christ, just like I need Christ. And then he moves further into the house, and here are all these Gentiles in the house. And Peter confesses that attitude, that posture of sinful superiority to all them. You all know, it's a surprise, right, that I'm here. You all know I shouldn't be here. The laws tell me that I shouldn't be in this house, but God has shown me something different. And I came at once. God was doing this. And when he opens his mouth, he says, I know now, I understand that God does not show partiality. That, that idea of partiality, favoritism, it means literally to lift the face. It means to judge people based on external, observable kinds of things. Their age, their ancestry, their affluence or lack thereof, Right? Their, their accomplishments in life, to, to judge them based on all that. But now Peter is confessing, now I understand that Jesus is building a church meant for all people. I understand that God does not show partiality, that there's grace enough for everyone, even for me, even for me. And then God confirms it all, right? In verses 44 to 48, the Spirit comes and all of those Gentiles are converted to faith. And it's really an amazing thing. It's like deja vu from Acts chapter 2. Because here's Peter and his brothers, his Jewish brothers in Christ, and they're watching these Gentiles who the Spirit has come on them. How do they know that? Because they start speaking in tongues. And they remember they had an experience like that 
weeks and weeks prior. And they knew immediately what God had done in their midst. It was a sign. It wasn't a sign for Cornelius and his family, his household. It was a sign for Peter and the guys who were with him that God had now included the Gentiles, that God had brought these people in the same way that he brought them in earlier. And so Peter does the math and he says, we shouldn't withhold water from these guys. They deserve to be baptized. They're one of us. They're one of us now. And he stays on for a few days. The conversion we all need. Some of you this morning, someone in here perhaps needs to be converted from a life of religion to a life of faith in Jesus. To turn away from trusting in yourself, depending on yourself, and trusting alone in Jesus. He is the one who has earned forgiveness and salvation. You need to depend on him and what he's purchased for you. And for some of us, it might mean a conversion of our heart from a posture and an attitude of superiority towards others to gospel humility. Here are two implications for all of us. The first one is this. Jesus welcomes all people, so imitate Jesus. He welcomes all people. Imitate Jesus. Now, the news of this, right? We're transitioning into chapter 11. The news of this gets to Jerusalem. Peter goes there. He takes it with him. And he explains to the other apostles there in Jerusalem and to the other brothers what's happened. Now, the minute that he starts to talk, there's a party there. You see it in, in verse 2 of chapter 11, the, the party of the circumcision. And they're critical of Peter because he's gone into this house of Gentiles and he shared the gospel and he never should have crossed that threshold. What were you thinking, Peter? You know that's against the rules. Man, you were out of bounds. And Peter just graciously, carefully begins to explain it to them. Now remember, those guys who were critical of Peter Keep this in mind. I, I believe that they're Christians. I believe they were, they were believers. But they hadn't been on the same journey yet that Peter had been on, remember? Peter had a couple of days to process all of that, a couple of days of the grace of God sinking deeper and deeper into his heart when that conversion finally came over him. And so now these guys are hearing it for the first time, and it's shaking them up. But Peter starts to explain what happened. He says, God told me in this vision to go with them, and I went with them, and he told me that what he'd made clean no longer called it uncommon. And, and he proved it. At first, I thought it was about food, but it's not about food. It's about people. He sent me those Gentiles, and I went with them. And then he told them about the angel going to Cornelius, and Cornelius sending for him. And he tells them why Cornelius had sent for him. Look at verses 13, 13 and 14 there in chapter 11. He told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa, bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. Cornelius needed to hear the gospel in order to be saved. And Peter tells them that. And then look at what he says. He wraps it up, verses 15 to 18. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I can imagine that they're thinking about what took place in Acts 2. And I remembered the word of the Lord. He remembers what Jesus said. John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What happened to them happened to us. Happened to us happened to them. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? This is something God was doing. And I was simply along for the ride. The Spirit spoke to me. 
I had a vision. An angel of God spoke to Cornelius. God was doing this, brothers. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Verse 18, they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. How do you know whether you have an issue with this posture of superiority towards people who are different from you, whether it's their age or their ancestry, their appearance, their affluence, how do you know? It's not whether or not you can get the answer right on the test. It's not simply about nodding in agreement to say, yes, Brian, I agree with everything that you've said this morning about this issue. It's deeper than that. Because God sent Peter to a person. He sent him into a people. There was a person Peter needed to embrace. There was a people Peter needed to embrace. And there's a person that you need to embrace. And there's a people you need to embrace. That's how you'll know if it has really sunk into your heart, if your heart's really being converted with the gospel humility. That the color of a person's sin, skin or their first language or their affluence, or lack thereof, or their age, that those things are not somehow barriers to you coming near to them, in proximity to them, welcoming them, including them, loving them with the love of Christ that you've been the recipient of. You may think, well, I don't have an issue with that. I was thinking about this, and I thought about that instance there in New Orleans, but I also thought about an instance that happened years later Years later, when I was pastoring a church in Columbus, Ohio, and a gentleman named Yusef Ziada came to faith in Jesus. I was there when he, when he trusted Christ. You know who led Yusef Ziada? A Jordanian man, a big man. I mean, he was a mountain of a guy. He must have been about 6'5". I think he went about 260. He was a big dude. And I was in his house with a guy named Ung Park, a Korean man. Now, how a Korean and a Jordanian got together in Columbus, Ohio, I, it's a story like Acts 10, isn't it? God orchestrates these things, beloved. We can't figure it out. But Yusuf came to faith in Jesus. So did his wife, who was also Jordanian. Where were they going to go to church? Well, they were a block from Sharon Woods Baptist Church. Yusuf, come along with us. Come to church with us Sunday morning. And Yusef came to church on Sunday morning. Now, Yusef looked like a Jordanian man. He was a large man with a dark complexion and a heavy, dark beard. This was about a month. This was about October 11th, 1991. And my mostly white church shrunk back from Yusef, Ziada. And over the next three or four months, I had one appointment after another, after another in my office of men and women afraid of Yusuf Ziada. A gentleman who was now carrying a Bible, not a Quran, who was meeting with me two or three times a week, reading the scriptures, reading the gospels, wrestling with belief in Jesus and following Christ. A man who had a tough exterior, who could be loud and brash in his argumentation, but who had really genuinely come to faith in Jesus. He was baptized about four months in. But some of those pushbacks were still going on. And I think that that might be one of the most sensitive things for us in the U.S. today. Perhaps in Ahwatukee, when we look at someone and we think, I'm not sure that I want to engage with them because I think they might be the enemy. They're so different 
from me. But Jesus is building a church that's meant to include all people. Now, that's just one example. I don't, I don't want to get too specific applying it because God may be speaking to you about something else. Here's the question you need to ask. Who's my Cornelius? Who's my Cornelius? Who is it that God wants me to embrace and to reach out to just the way he sent Peter? Who's, who's my Cornelius? We need to let the gospel wash our hearts and minds and mouths out to be careful with what we say. You know those little quips that we say amongst ourselves and we get a little chuckle out of some of our friends and we would never ever think to say that in front of that person or those people because they wouldn't think it was so funny. But we do it like it's second nature. We're guilty. We need a conversion of our hearts. The implication is that Jesus welcomes everyone so we should imitate Jesus. Here's the second implication. The gospel must be heard so proclaim it. The gospel must be heard, proclaim it. We saw that in the text. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe, to the Jew, to the Gentile. It's good news. It needs to be published. It needs to be shared. It needs to be told. And so when we're welcoming people that others may disregard, welcoming people that others may, uh, you know, discriminate against, and, and maybe you're getting a little pushback because you've welcomed them, because you're getting close to them from other believers, Welcome them, but tell them about the gospel. Tell them about someone who was cut off and discriminated against, who was rejected and forsaken. Tell them about that one who was pushed out of the way so that we could be brought in, so that we could be reconciled, so that our sins could be forgiven. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them that through the blood of Christ, God means to reconcile all of the races together into the body of Christ. It's through the blood that he means to kill the hostility, the alienation, the racism, the tribalism, the ethnocentrism that is pervasive among us as human beings to put it to death in Jesus, to bring us all together in the church that we would be fellow citizens and members of God's household, one Father who created us all through Jesus. Apart from hearing the gospel, that gospel, people can't be saved. That's a real issue in our world. The gospel is the answer to it. May it be to the Lord's glory that the church shows the world the difference that we're accepting and welcoming of people who are very different from ourselves. That the gospel's at work in us, that people get along and call one another brother and sister in the church that might have never gotten along before, might have never connected with each other before outside of the church. Tell them that Jesus one day will come again. He will put an end to all of this. He will judge all of that sin and he will receive to himself all those who trust in Jesus. Tell them the gospel because, as the title of the message is, because there's grace enough for everyone. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you for this text and I am uh, challenged by it. I'm convicted by it. I'm convicted by some of the things that I have thought through my life, some of the things that have come out of my mouth that are shameful and sinful. And Father, I'm, I'm convicted of fears that I've had when I look at a person and I make judgments and I make estimations based on their age or their appearance, their ancestry, their, their accomplishments, their affluence or their lack thereof, and I use those things and they become things that isolate me from those people rather than 
moving me into relationship with them for the sake of the gospel. So Father, I pray this morning that you would just continue to move me into gospel humility and that you would do that with every heart in the room that claims the name of Jesus, that you would convert us, that we would put away any kind of cultural superiority, a posture of that, and that you would move us to have a a gospel humility about our lives. And Father, I pray for any person, any heart in the room today that has been depending on themselves for forgiveness and acceptance with you, that they would turn away from all that self-effort and trust alone in the work that Jesus has done, that he finished on the cross, and that you stamped, approved, and accomplished through his resurrection from the dead. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. I pray that, uh, that those changes, those conversions would happen in our lives with one another today and in your presence. Help us to be a church that's marked as a people who are like Jesus, that we would imitate you and that we would publish the gospel, we would make it known to our neighbors and our friends, our coworkers, and to the nations. We pray it in Christ's name. Hey, as we worship together,